If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 is where we're going to begin. Uh, we'll, we'll begin reading in verse 27 in a moment. Mark 8, verse 27. So Mark chapter 8, up to this point in Jesus' ministry, uh, he has called lonely tax collectors, downcast fishermen, and more to follow him. He has been present with people, offering forgiveness to the sinful, bringing healing to the sick. He has boldly proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught with authority and power. Uh, And all of this, all of this that Jesus has done thus far, looks exactly like the coming of the Son of Man Messiah movement that everyone hoped for. It's a popular movement. People are excited. They're watching what Jesus is doing. They want in on it. The dreams of God's people seem to be coming true at last. Then we get to the end of Mark chapter 8, and this happens. Let's read. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say? I am. Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days, rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God but merely human concerns. Then he called to the crowd, to him, along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, 
the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when He comes in His Father's glory with the holy angels. And He said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of your word and for calling us to be your disciples and to follow you. Lord, I pray that as we consider the words of your scripture together today, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this year, we've been reflecting on being formed in the image of Jesus, whose life was marked by incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. Uh, So for the past few weeks, we have seen the many ways in which the incarnation, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, calls us to be present, uh, to be present in the world, present in our bodies, present in community. And, and last week, we considered how all of these things are expressed and embodied in the communal practices of baptism and communion. These are the ways that we begin following Jesus as we are formed in his image. But the journey doesn't end there. Jesus' incarnational presence is one that empties itself and assumes the form of a servant, as we've just read in our dwelling passage. He is humbled to the point of death, even death on a cross. So incarnation moves toward crucifixion. The path that we walk as we follow Jesus leads toward the cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who many of us have been reading over the last few days and continue reading uh, throughout the season of Lent, famously put it like this. When Jesus calls a person, he bids them, come and die. That is the call of Christ. This is what we're going to be reflecting on throughout the season of Lent. As we journey toward the cross of Good Friday. And our passage today is where Jesus makes this path clear to his disciples. So let's walk back through this passage and listen for what Jesus might be saying to us today. The passage began with Jesus and his disciples traveling north towards Caesarea Philippi. This is a place named after Caesar, the Roman emperor, and Philip, Herod's son, whom Rome had put in charge of the Jewish people. Uh, And so it, it had long been a place of pagan worship, and it also become a Roman military outpost. All things anathema to the Jewish people. 
right? An affront to their God and to their people. Caesarea Philippi was a sign that they were not in charge, uh, that they have been oppressed and that they live under the weight of a secular, pagan, Roman empire. And so as they are traveling to Caesarea Philippi, it says, on the way, he, Jesus, asked them. And I just love that. I just want to pause for a moment. On the way, Jesus strikes up conversation with them. That's so important, engaging in these kinds of things. I mean, so many of our community meals, community dinners involve the use of these little conversation cards. Uh, we love them, right? They're these little things that, that have a little question on them and invite us to engage with one another. Jesus does this too. Jesus doesn't merely teach. He doesn't merely declare. He doesn't merely instruct. Jesus asks questions and he listens. Jesus invites their participation and their reflection. We, as followers of Jesus, are invited to participate and reflect, and we would do well as we engage others to do the same. We don't merely proclaim things at people, but we invite people to respond. And so the question that Jesus asks them is this. He says, who do people say that I am? The Gospel of Mark is 16 chapters long. This is right towards the end of chapter 8. We are halfway through the Jesus story of Matthew, of, of the, the Gospel of Mark. So the disciples and the people have seen Jesus, right? They've been watching Jesus for a while. They've seen him do amazing things, incredible things. And so it's a good place to pause and reflect. Who is this Jesus that has been seen, right? What does all of this mean? Who is this guy? Who do people say that I am? Verse 28, they replied. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. What? Uh, this response is a little bit confusing. What is going on here? Uh, well, it's confusing at first until we begin to understand the underlying Jewish theology at work here. Right? The hope of the Jewish people is bound up in the messianic promise of the coming Son of Man. Uh, this is depicted in Daniel chapter 7. You guys remember that a few months ago? Uh, if, if you were here, we were going through the book of Daniel. Daniel 7 begins with these powerful, evil empires depicted as rampaging wild beasts and monsters, crushing God's people underfoot. Until they're interrupted by God on his throne who judges the beasts, breaks their power, and then one like a son of man appears, coming on the clouds of heaven. And he is given authority and power and an everlasting kingdom that will never be destroyed. This son of man is the hope of the Jewish people. 
Someone who the Jews believe will finally come and destroy all the enemies, the beasts and monsters of God's people and establish God's eternal kingdom. Bible scholar Richard Bauckham summarizes the Jewish belief this way. This figure, the Son of Man, is understood to be a human who had been born and lived on earth in the past and is now being preserved by God in paradise or heaven until the time of the end when he will fulfill the role of the Messiah described in Daniel 7 and other prophecies. Uh, This is the hope of the Jewish people. This is what they're thinking about. This is what they're talking about. This is what they're looking for. So who do people say that I am? It's the question that Jesus asks. And they say that this Jesus may very well be the promised Son of Man, the Messiah, someone come back from heaven to establish the kingdom in power. And some say the Son of Man might be John the Baptist, because if you flip a few chapters back, he had been beheaded, and perhaps now he's come back with vengeance to make the kingdom of God appear on earth finally. Some say that the Son of Man is Elijah, because he had previously been taken up into heaven. So now perhaps he's coming back to finish what he started back then, maybe by calling down fire. He was particularly good at that. If you remember, you can read a story in First and Second Kings. Some say that the Son of Man might be some other prophet of God. Come back to finally establish the kingdom and vanquish the enemies. These are the rumors that are flying around about Jesus. So after they summarize the day's tabloid papers, what people are saying about Jesus, Jesus asks them a second question. Verse 29, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And I wonder if there was a moment of nervous silence before anyone responded, or if Peter just shot from the hip as he usually seems to. Uh, However it happened, Peter answered, you are the Messiah, which is a way of referring to the anointed king. In other words, you are the one who has authority. You're the one who has the power to establish God's everlasting kingdom. Jesus is the true Messiah, the Son of Man, the King of the coming kingdom of God. And you'd think, after a declaration like this, there would be a moment of celebration, of joy, of wonder, of of all kinds of stuff. And in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus does speak a blessing over Peter for his response. Blessed are you, Peter, son of, you know, on and on he goes. But instead of all of that, what we see here in Mark is verse 30. It simply says, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Don't tell anyone about this. Why? Why tell them to keep incredible news like this quiet? Well, because for many of the Jewish people, the Son of Man Messiah figure conjured up images of warfare, revolt, and the utter destruction of their enemies. 
I'm sure that images like this may very well be coming up in the disciples' minds, especially as they get closer to the pagan worship, Roman military-infested Caesarea Philippi. They're looking around, they're thinking, all of these people have got to go, right? Are we here to destroy them? These are the images that came to mind. But Jesus has something very different in mind. Verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. This turns all the ideas about this coming Son of Man on their head. Rather than a conquering king, the Son of Man, Messiah, would be a suffering servant. And notice what kind of suffering it is that he talks about about. Dietrich Bonhoeffer goes at length to point this out. He notices that there are kinds of suffering that are celebrated, right? There are kinds of suffering that are glorious, but perhaps the suffering of a warrior in battle, right? That's a glorious kind of suffering, but this is not that kind of suffering. This is not the kind of suffering that Jesus speaks of. He not only suffers, but must suffer and be rejected. Bonhoeffer puts it this way, Jesus is the Christ who was rejected in his suffering. Rejection removed all dignity and honor from his suffering. It was dishonorable suffering. Suffering and rejection express in summary form the cross of Jesus. The cross is not a glorious kind of suffering, but a shameful suffering coupled with rejection. Rejection by his own people. Jesus spells this out plainly for his disciples. He tells them straight. But then Peter speaks up again. And perhaps he's stirred up, outraged even, as he looks around Caesarea Philippi and he sees what's there. He says, we can't give in to this, right? Don't give up. And so, verse 32, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. No, can you believe it? One moment, Peter is saying, you're the king. You're the one with all power and authority. And the next moment, he has the audacity to rebuke the one that he has called the king. It's somewhat shocking to read it so abruptly like that. But isn't this the story of God's people all along? I mean, throughout history and even on up to today, Look, Peter has his theology right. You are the Messiah. That's the correct answer. 
He has passed his theology exam, 101. Peter probably could have even cited book, chapter, verse of several texts about the coming promised Messiah. I'm sure he knew Daniel chapter 7 and would have gladly pointed it out. Peter had the right answer. He believed the correct theology. He affirmed the proper doctrine. But when it came to actually following Jesus, actually trusting Jesus, Peter had his own ideas. Again, Bonhoeffer puts it this way. Jesus must be followed. An idea of Christ, a doctrinal system, a general religious recognition of grace or forgiveness of sins does not require discipleship. It doesn't require us to actually follow or do anything. One enters into a relationship with an idea by way of knowledge, enthusiasm, perhaps even by carrying it out, but never by personal, obedient discipleship. This is the call of Christ. Not just to have the right answer, but to follow him where he goes. Throughout history, the church has loved its theology, loved its answers to questions, Loved proclaiming the truth of Jesus, just like Peter. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the Lord. But when it comes to actually following Jesus, the church, just like Jesus, has struggled, faltered, and often even rebuked Jesus by the way that we have lived. All too often, we want the power and the glory of the kingdom of God apart from the cross of Christ. And Jesus consistently identifies crossless kingdoms as being not of God, but of Satan. He was tempted by it in the wilderness. Bow down before me and I'll give you all of these kingdoms. They'll be yours. No need for a cross. And Jesus said, be gone, Satan. And here once more, a voice comes and says, no way we're going to do that cross stuff. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. And he corrects Peter. You do not have in mind the concerns of God but merely human concerns. From Peter on through today, the people of God have continued being deceived by Satan and becoming preoccupied with merely human concerns. From medieval Catholic crusades to Protestant religious wars to American politics, Christian faith has all too often become concerned with keeping power rather than giving up power. Get behind us, Satan. 
These are not the concerns of God, but human concerns. It's telling today that the term evangelical, which originally meant gospel people, has come to mean a political movement that seems all consumed with holding on to power at the expense of character, kindness, virtue, love, service. It's a movement that seems to be willing to give up everything except for power. Right? This is another election year. We're going to be hearing stuff like this a lot. And often we're going to hear stuff like this mixed in with religious language. And when we do, we would do well to say, get behind us, Satan. This is not of God. These are merely human concerns. For those who are reading along with Bonhoeffer these next few weeks, remember he lived and wrote during the rise of the Nazi regime. When he talks about carrying his cross, when he talks about dying, it actually cost him something. Many churches were swept into the movement of mid-20th century Germany, but Bonhoeffer actively resisted it. We, too, must learn to resist the power movements of our day as we follow Jesus to the way of the cross. This is what it means to not only believe the right things about Jesus, but to actually follow Jesus. Back to the text, verse 34, Jesus turns from Peter toward the crowd and the rest of his disciples, and he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and follow me. Jesus speaks plainly to everyone. If you want to follow me, here's a quick heads up. This is where we're going, right? This journey is not an ascent to power. It's not a swift victory. This is a descent to death. It's not about puffing ourselves up. It is about denying ourselves. Now, there are many who are not really lured by power as much as they are just drawn to ease. Uh, those who are not so much power-hungry, but life-lazy. These are those who follow wherever the current takes them, whatever happens to be the most popular trend, rather than taking the hard path of following Jesus toward suffering, rejection, and the cross. Uh, let me illustrate it this way. Last Sunday... I, along with the rest of America, was drawn into the current of the action of the Super Bowl and the drama of Taylor Swift, right? Anyone else, you know, watch that? You know, I, I was right there, uh, not the whole game, but uh, right there for some of it, watching along, seeing that absolutely intense ending, 
And all the times the camera cut to Taylor Swift's reactions where she was sitting, right? I mean, this was just, that's what the Super Bowl was this year. Uh, football action and Taylor Swift drama. Now here's the deal. There are those who are avid football fans. They watched every single game leading up to this one. And they tracked it all. They put in hours of sweat and tears and, uh, you know, dollars of who knows what. Uh, there are also those who are avid, and I mean avid, fans of Taylor Swift, right? They have listened to all of her music, hang on every single word that she says, and, you know, are, are caught up in the drama of it. Uh, spent hundreds of dollars going to see her tour, right? Uh, I am neither of these. I did not watch a single football game leading up to the Super Bowl. In fact, it wasn't until last week, Thursday, that I even realized that the Super Bowl was happening. Uh, and I was like, oh, that's this weekend, all right. Um, right? I am also not particularly a Taylor Swift fan. I've listened to some of her music. I don't listen to her music. It's something that happens to me more often than it's something that I pursue. So I'm not a huge fan of these things. I don't follow these things. I'm not, you know, diehard in any of this. And yet somehow I found myself last Sunday watching the action of the Super Bowl and the drama of Taylor Swift. Why? Because the culture I live in. Because the culture I live in. Super Bowl was happening, and the camera kept pointing to this, you know, the drama of Taylor Swift and her boyfriend who's out there on the, on the field, so on and so forth. I'm not invested in this. I'm not devoted to this, but it was easy to go along with it because that's the culture that I live in. I think that for many people, this is how they come to Christianity. It's not because they really seek to follow Jesus, but because they're taken along the popular current of cultural Christianity. It's not specifically Jesus that they follow, but some vague notion of Christianity and its various traditions, going to church, doing this thing, believing that thing. There's a difference between being a cultural Christian who's part of the crowd and being someone who responds to the call, if any of you want to follow me, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Christianity in pursuit of power is not the way of Jesus. Jesus was rejected. Christianity in pursuit of ease, going with the flow, is not the way of Jesus. Jesus suffered. The way of Jesus is denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following him on the path of suffering and rejection. It's not looking for glory. It's not looking for power. It's not just going along with what the people around us think. It's keeping our eyes on Jesus and following him to the end. And so two more pieces of wisdom from Dietrich Bonhoeffer on this passage that I think is important to pay attention to. As we think about 
the call to suffer. This call has been and can be misused and abused. Bonhoeffer says this, The cross is neither misfortune nor harsh fate. Instead, it is that suffering which comes from our allegiance to Jesus alone. The cross is not random suffering, but necessary suffering. The cross is not suffering that stems from natural existence. It is suffering that comes from being Christian. Often, we have this phrase where something difficult happens, we're in a tough situation, and we say, oh, it's my cross to bear. That's not following Jesus. And if we take that too far, it actually becomes abuse. Following Jesus does involve suffering, but it is not random suffering. It's necessary suffering. It's the kind of suffering that only results because of our allegiance to Jesus. And so this call to suffer is not a call to remain in abusive situations. It's not a call of self-loathing or self-destruction. It is a call to remain faithful to Jesus no matter what. And suffering is part of that. The other thing that Bonhoeffer describes of this call to take up the cross, he says, so that no one presumes to seek out some cross arbitrarily uh, or search for some suffering, Jesus says they each have their own cross ready, assigned by God and measured to fit. They must all bear the suffering and rejection measured out to each of them. This is something we're going to be exploring more in the coming weeks, but I simply want to say taking up the cross and following Jesus might look different for each one of us. It's not exactly the same for every person. Take up your cross, not someone else's, not the cross that you've always been told you ought to take up, but the cross that Jesus actually gives you to take up. The way of sacrifice, the way of service, the way of suffering will look different for each person. And so we'll continue exploring these things in the coming weeks and what it looks like to die with Jesus. But I want you to hear this call today. If you want to be Jesus' disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Amen.